Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Godzilla Pod War Hour. My name is Michael Kelly, and with us as always, my esteemed colleague in in kaiju-related insanity, uh, Mr. Nathan Allen Bear. Nathan, good evening, sir. How are you? Uh, I'm, I'm here, Mike. Here, queer, and dying for a cold beer. Uh, <laughs> Very good. We're here tonight to discuss a film called Latitude Zero. Uh, now, this is, I would say, not a kaiju movie, not even really a monster movie. It's a movie that has some monsters in it towards the end, but it's more of just like a wackadoodle sort of Jules Verne-ish like science fiction movie that happens to be made by a lot of the key people responsible for uh, the Showa-era Godzilla films. Um, but this was a co-production, uh, at least in theory, uh, between Toho and... Dom Sharp Productions. I have, okay, on Wik- Wikizilla, I have National General Pictures, which is the most generic name of all time. Oh, uh, I have here, and this is according to, I've got August Rangoon's uh, book about E.J. Superaya, and uh, he refers to it as Don Sharp Productions. Uh, we'll go with Don Sharp Productions then. We'll go with Don Sharp. That, that sounds like a, a haircuttery. Um, <laughs> yeah, according, according to August Rangoon, it's a co-production between Toho and Don Sharp Productions. Uh, and based on the stories of uh, writer Ted Sherdman, who wrote them. That's right. The giant ant movie. The giant ant movie that came out the same year as Godzilla. That's an amazing film, and uh, we'd both much rather be talking about that. But I digress. Uh, And then apparently there seems to be some conflicting information on this between at least Wikipedia and this book. It's that... uh, Sekizawa, who has written previous Godzilla films and Toho monster movies, apparently he worked on the adaptation, but at least according to this, he worked on the adaptation. Other sources point to that he only wrote the Japanese version of this. We will, due to resources, we're just reviewing the English dub of this. Yeah. Well, uh, yes, and I wanted to also mention Ted Sherdeman is also responsible was responsible. He was adapting a, a radio serial from 1941 uh, that was you know, Latitude Zero. And right. uh, so he was adapting that 20 years later, which yeah. he wrote uh, into, into uh, this film. So, you know, kind of treading out the, the old what have you. Um, yeah. But yeah, another I mean... Key, yeah, and another key to this is the fact, so this is a co-production... Uh, and unlike, let's say, a movie like Tora, 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 where I guess that movie wasn't financially successful, but it works as a movie. Uh, this, on the other hand, was a Japanese-American co-production where the Americans pulled out at the last minute. And I guess to save their losses, Toho just decided to continue with it anyways. Right. Um, and according to at least Mr. Rangoon's book, uh, that caused like significant uh problems for Subaraya and his crew because they really couldn't do the special effects as ingenious as some of them are uh at least to the submarines uh others look like complete garbage yeah yeah <laughs> like um, you know like laughable we've got well we'll get into that later yeah but this film does contain 
absolutely some of the worst special effects of any sort of science fiction film produced by Toho from the 60s. Like, so, yeah. so some of the worst, stu- like, inexcusably bad <laughs> um, stuff. And And when you consider that it is Honda directing Tanaka as the producer, Sekizawa working on the script, even Akira Fukube handing in a uh, score that can only be described as present. <laughs> um, <laughs> Fukube was just very tired at this point. Like he, he thought he was out uh, after, you know, <laughs> destroy all just monsters. Like, uh, just, just like Godfather three. Exactly. Exactly. Like Godfather three. Like just when they thought, you know, he was out, they pulled him back in. I'm a little unclear and I don't, you know, let me, Tell me if I'm what happened here, fill in the blanks. But it was my understanding that the last time all these dudes worked together, especially um, Subaraya on special effects, was in fact War of the Gargantuas. And then Subaraya went off, created Ultraman, and like at, from that point on, he was just like, okay, guys, you do your own thing. I got Ultraman, it's ludicrously successful we're kind of parting our ways here. And I, it, I didn't think that all five of these guys, the key guys here ever worked together again. Um, so is, was there a reconciliation or are they just like, because also this is uh Subaraya's last film. Um, because even though he's listed in the credits of uh, Godzilla's revenge, that's just an honorary credit. He, I believe he died pretty shortly after this, probably because of all of the complications from having, you know, the other studio pull out and having everything fall on Toho as in an unexpected way probably didn't help his health. Um, but Well, the book mentions he was because, again, he was doing Ultraman and I think a couple other projects simultaneously. Um, and he uh, apparently, you know, uh, kind of like a Silicon Valley kid, you know, sleeping under his desk, you know, at work. Uh, you know, just really hustling for reasons. I don't know why I would, you know, from my point of view, if you're going to you know, do so, I either choose like one job or another. But because uh, you would think and I had assumed, I guess, like not, you know, seeing how the lineage worked that, you know, when he did Ultraman, that was him being done with movies. But no, it's like he, he doubles back for this. Um, so who knows? Maybe he's just, you know, his friendship with Honda was just so strong and with everyone there at toho um i mean they must have had some kind of great relationship because they borrowed the godzilla uh suit for an ultraman episode which we may or may not discuss in the future um so yeah so so clearly like there's no bad blood betwixt them right so uh it, it was you know enough for him to take on the challenge of this and to keep with it even after you know half the budget went away yeah this and the whole film when you when you know the history of it and how it um its release and its sort of non-reaction non-reception as it were there's there is a sort of almost shakespearean like tragic element to it as far as what it did what it did to toho what it did to toho science fiction films and their plans for the coming decade that being the 70s because it's 1969 and you look back after as we have 
meticulously cataloging both the films in the 50s and 60s and then you go to the 1970s where they're pushing out slop like you know Godzilla versus Gigan and Godzilla versus Megalon which is a film really only in the academic sense um it's it's <laughs> you know like that's you wonder like what the hell happened and in many ways latitude zero is what happened this movie had a budget of uh 289 million yen and uh, nearest that we can detect it only made like 170 million yen back so it lost a lot of money for the studio it was a international embarrassment and the tragic part and and why i say it's shakespearean tragedy because it was supposed to be a co-production it's it's like right. it's not toho's fault this time you right. know like it's easy to look at this movie and be like oh look at all this crazy wacky bullshit that toho and you know maybe even sekizawa obviously grafted into it like for example the stuff with the griffin which normally categorically falls right into Sekizawa's sort of penchant for like just adding a random kaiju later on in the script, uh, a la, you know, Mogera in the Mysterians, a la like that walrus in Gorath that's just <laughs> chilling out. <laughs> I forgot its name because it's so useless. But like, you know, but one of the three pieces of information we actually know about the 1941 uh, radio serial is that it had Cesar Romero's character, Malik. It had Joseph Cotton's character, um, Captain McKenzie. And it had the Griffin. The Griffin was in it. So that is not a Sekizawa edition. There's like... And those are the three things we know about it. There is no... Right. As, you know, it's there's no recording of it. Uh, anywhere there's there's very little information left it is it is lost to the ages maybe thankfully so uh <laughs> judging by the quality of this movie well you, you could assume that maybe the reason why this was brought up in the first place is because maybe the material that w the original material worked perfectly for this kind of production you know in theory um you know many other movies have been made based on previously existing material like you know brian de palma's the untouchables right for example uh and that's a, i'd say an example of a successful take of you getting a, <laughs> a very successful take of like taking something that had been around and was popular and then uh giving it a new spin for the the cinema rest in peace uh, um sean connery by the way star of oh. zardoz uh, which of which the once they get to latitude zero i there was some serious zardoz vibes not the least of which is that like joseph cotton is dressed as the character friend from that film like it's almost exactly that same outfit that's right there's a movie called zardoz which contains a character whose name is friend yeah they really if you haven't seen Zardoz, stop listening to this right now and do something important and useful with your life and go watch Zardoz because it will change everything immediately and irrevocably. Uh, <laughs> oh, my God, Zardoz is incredible. But, um, but yeah, no, uh, never mind. But R.I.P. Sean Connery um, and Alex Trebek, I guess. They... 
they're both in hell together. <laughs> It's 2020. It's, tw- it's 2020, man. Not a, not the best of years. Too much chiva for this. <laughs> Look, man, you know, not to have it be a referendum on 2020, but there were some good things that happened in 2020, such as, um, for those of you keeping tabs, Golden Grams brought back its original recipe from uh, the 60s, <laughs> where they're actually using real honey again. That's real. Um, and then literally every other event has been the most disastrous thing that has happened in the last 100 years. But, you know, golden grabs, very delicious, very tasty. Real honey, you know, longer using, you know, beaver or, uh, yeah, beaver anus extract. <laughs> oh, those golden grabs. Ooh, those golden grabs. Crispy, crusty, all new breakfast treat. I don't know. Homer sings it in one episode of The Simpsons. Right, right. Doesn't matter. All right. We're going to hear a little bit of Akira Fukube's very exasperated, very exhausted score, where I think he may be playing, he may be conducting like half asleep, and he's just yeah. sort of like, what? Um, you, you can hear the check being cashed in the background. <laughs> if you listen carefully, you can. <laughs> <laughs> it's yeah he's definitely in like gus van sant in uh jay and silent bob strike back mode where he's just counting the stacks of money and they're like uh, kira should we start recording the score and he's like score what score leave me alone while i count stacks of cash for doing no work all right here we go <laughs> And now it's time to meticulously dissect the plot. Yes. 
Okay, so latitude zero begins with uh, a nice, I think, model shot of, of planet Earth. It, or it might be an optical effect of like a map painting or something, but it looks good. I think it says something like there's weird stuff or something. If, who, who knows? Maybe a quote from, uh, I don't know, the Bible yeah. or something. Yeah, <laughs> and I, I honestly can't tell if Joseph Cotton is also doing the narration. I think he is. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so he, he's uh, saying that there's a, you know, a deep sea, uh, international deep sea expedition going on to check on the, uh, I guess, a uh, certain underwater current that, yes. like the jet stream uh, pushes airplanes quicker, might be able to push submarines quicker underwater. Uh, you know, it's just a little bit of uh, fake science for the nerds and the audience to, you know, uh, here to yes. move the plot along. And he's very, he's very exact about the time. It's like it's 1969, and it's early spring in 1969. Yeah. But he doesn't give an exact date, so it's right. like we kind of have a vague yeah. knowing of what's happening. There's a diving bell. Uh, diving bell. Un un underwater, uh, slowly descending, and it's got uh, three people. Uh, Doctor Ken Tashiro, played by. Uh, Akira Takarada, you know, to Toho uh, regular Akira Takarada, uh, and then uh, a French gentleman, uh, Dr. Jules Massan, who I'm assuming is a reference to uh, Jules Verne. Yeah. That, that was my, like, wink, wink, uh, I get what you're doing. Um, and then the Yankee, Perry Lawton, who is a journalist. Who's, you know, first of all, I wanted to go back and say, if this guy... If this Jules Mason is French, then I'm uh, not Irish, and I am Irish. Well, uh, this. <laughs> so he, the actor. So this is this is uh, needlessly detailed, but he is a. <laughs> so uh, is the podcast. So go for it. Yeah. So he he's uh, <laughs> he's actually uh, Japanese. He was born in France. He's Japanese and Danish mixed. Aha. And he is. Uh, I, I should probably uh, have his. Probably say his name. It's uh, Masumi Okada, Okada, okay. Okada, and uh, yeah. So he is uh, half Japanese, half Danish, but born in France, and he is actually a very prolific character actor. And I guess kind of like Charles Bronson and Yul Brenner because of his not quite, you know, uh, you know, where, where, where is he from? Uh, features, you know, he was able to get lots of roles, uh, both as Japanese and non-Japanese people. Uh, and within the Japanese studio system. And I believe he was also in uh, the TV show Shogun. Okay. Uh, with, uh, with Toshiro Mifune and... Uh... Never mind. Not important. Anyways. <laughs> Richard Chamberlain. There we Richard go. Richard Chamberlain. Chamberlain. Yes. Yes. There we go. So, yeah. He was with Richard Chamberlain in a TV show that no one but me remembers. Anyways. Uh, so, yeah. So, that answers your question. And uh, then we've got Perry Lawton... Uh, and, and he's just there. Uh, yes, but he is there, <laughs> but he's, um, he's portrayed by a character actor named, uh, Richard J. Eichel, uh, who has been, first of all, in another, uh, Japanese American co-production called the Green Slime. 
Ah. Which is a really awesome movie. And um, that film is from the director of, you guessed it, Battle Royale. So that movie's awesome. I mean, Battle Royale is awesome, but also so is The Green Slime. Uh, Richard Jenkel's been in a lot of stuff. Uh, He was in uh, the John Carpenter movie Starman as the uh, military dude who is absolutely rocking a pair of aviator shades while he's pursuing Jeff Bridges and Karen Allen across the desert. Um, that's one of the, the last John Carpenter movies that hasn't been commodified into oblivion. Um, it's pretty awesome. Although they did make a TV show out of it. So, um, but he's in that he's, if, if you see his face, you'll recognize him. He's been in a lot of stuff and he's kind of the main character in this as is Akira Takarada, as is Joseph Cotton. When we get to him, it's a real sort of communal, vibe there isn't a real because there's like a distinct lack of of characterization in this movie there isn't a real sense of who the main character if there is one even is so that's happening as well (laughs) sorry (laughs) no no i think that 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 sums it up perfectly we've got to let everyone know what they're in for uh because we weren't warned so uh they're in this diving bell uh doing science stuff uh at one point, because uh, you have to remember, with uh, this, you've got the the uh, the French, Mr. Uh, Jules and Ken, and they're like the real scientists there. And then uh, Perry is just there as a journalist, so he's there as the foil for uh, explanatory dialogue. Yeah. So that that way he can ask the questions. So uh, you know, at, at one point he asks uh, what <laughs> what DSL means, uh, which uh, according to them. Uh, means uh, deep scattering layer, uh, which, I don't know, means something completely different in my community, but uh, (laughs) I I digress. Uh, So, yeah, they're looking at this deep scattering layer, and... uh, Through through the diving bell, which... Through the diving bell. If people don't know what that is, because it's a pretty rare thing. It was kind of like this half measure before they really started to get their act together with these sort of portable, submersible subs. Right, before James Um, Cameron got his groove on. uh, Right, well, exactly. This would be, if James Cameron was born 20 years earlier, this is what he would have gotten his groove on on because this is like, basically just looks like a big Christmas ornament. It's just a sphere with windows in it that is connected actually to this uh, sea vessel uh, with a tether. Um, right. Yeah. You know, it, just can't, a, it can't function on its own. It, it can't function on its own. Right. It doesn't have propulsion. That it, yeah. That one cord is, uh, <laughs> you know, right. it's only saving grace. So, um, yeah. So I guess an underwater hurricane or something happens. And uh, uh, a, yeah. a, an undercover volcano, which Same I thing. know exactly how Toho achieved this effect Go on. Um, and will attempt to say so. In, in the next, like, 60 seconds. Please cut me off if I go too long. The only reason why I'm saying this is because this specific effect from this movie was gone into pornographic detail on a bonus feature on uh, a... I think it was the Rodan War the Gargantuas DVD from a few years ago. And they, like, set aside this part of this documentary talking about Subaraya to just talk about this one scene from latitude zero. And it's like, no one's ever seen latitude zero. What the, what are you talking about? Um, but apparently, okay, 
here's what they did. If you're looking at the film, it looks like a series of like 15 mushroom clouds is just emanating from the ocean. Okay, kind of like at the end of uh, Hunt from Red October when they blow up the enemy sub and there's just this uh-huh. release of air that just comes up, except like times a million with lightning and all this shit. Okay, so how they do that is they take the camera. They We could do this uh, if we just had a fish tank. Um, but, you know, the difference is that Subaraya had like the skill to make it look great. This is sort of like the best thing in the movie also. Um, So what they did, fill up the tank halfway, turn the camera upside down, uh, paint like a sky in the water, uh, and then you just drop paint and little pieces of dirt and stuff into the water. And as it goes down and disseminates, not unlike a snow globe, and if the camera's upside down, it looks like this giant explosion is happening, but it's really this is the simplest stuff ever. Uh, right. And that's how they that's how they did it. So, you know, we are going to talk a lot about how the special effects in this movie are not great, but that sequence well, and a lot of the underwater like sub stuff does work and does look oh yeah. pretty good. Oh yeah, there's a there's a definite like break where you can see the stuff like the the nautical stuff seems pretty nice, and then all the uh, the the land based uh, special effects are just kind of like where did the money go? Uh- <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And and the stuff on land is just so awkward and weird. Yeah. Um, but we'll get to that. So. Yeah. Yes. So this underwater volcano happens, and it splits the tether, forcing, uh, you know, all three of these handsome young men uh, away. Uh, and the, uh, I guess the 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 land vessel sees the explosion uh, from their perspective, and they're just like, oh, they're they're gone. Uh, so all three of these gentlemen are knocked unconscious, and. You know, I guess some time goes by and they're still unconscious and two uh, deep sea divers just happen to be passing by. And uh, Dress, they dressed in gold Speedos. Gold Speedos, yes, that's right. How could I forget? Uh, <laughs> they look fabulous. <laughs> yes. Uh, and... Uh, they, they end up uh, what, taking this, uh, taking these gentlemen to the submarine. What was the name of the submarine? So the submarine, uh, shit. What I should know this. The Alpha. The Alpha. It's there the Alpha go. because alpha it's and Black Shark. Yeah. It's it's another sub that looks like the Atragon, except right. it doesn't have the drill bit uh, tip. Right. But other than just the tip. Um, it looks like a, a redo of the Atragon to the extent that in some countries, the alternate title is like Atragon two trying to like, really? I don't know, cash in on the big name success of Atragon, I guess. That makes sense. A... Um, but yeah, it's called the alpha. Yeah. So they, just they, think of the uh, Atragon. Yeah. So they awake. Uh, so, well, I should say specifically, so cut to Ken and Perry waking up in this uh sick bay uh in uh the alpha and uh jules is nowhere to be seen uh they are 
then introduced to uh, a woman also wearing a similar gold attire. Yes, as, but very uh, little clothing. Very Other little than, clothing. It's like she has a backless gold bikini on that I guess is right. just being secured by like tape or something because it doesn't make Matt. sense that this top isn't falling off from just the slightest inertia. <laughs> it's it's magic. A lot of stuff it's is ma- just magic in this movie. Magic, yes. Um, uh, but that's Dr. Ann Barton, played yeah. by Linda Hines, uh, and her performance can only be described as resting chloroform face uh, because <laughs> she is stunningly... Uh, non-evocative of uh, emotion in this film. Right. It's um, I don't want to. I, I mean, she's a say She's she's a doctor, but she's you know there's bedside manner, and then there's an event horizon which sucks in all, you know, dramatic, uh, whatever. And then it, and this event horizon starts at her face. There's a black hole that starts at her face, and she's I'm not saying she's an uggo. She's very cute. She's you know. She looks like a go-go dancer, basically. I'm just saying that uh, as far as a performance goes, this is you may as well be staring at a concrete slab because <laughs> it's just like all of her dialogue is just she's it delivers it like a pod person from Invasion of the Body Snatchers. It's stunning, well, really. She informs uh, these uh, two gentlemen that uh, Jules is uh, – not like he has a concussion or something like some something really bad is wrong with him. So he's in like he's in surgery, yeah. essentially. Um, so she then directs them to the bridge. And that's where they meet Joseph Cotton, who is, you know, a la Captain Nemo ob- observing uh, these volcanoes through his futuristic uh, television set. Which, uh, I guess if this was, like, a movie from a few years, like the 50s, it would have looked cooler. But it's 1969, and it's just kind of like... <laughs> yeah. Everything... Yeah. It's the um, it's the Star Wars effect, and it's the it's like watching Logan's Run, which came out, like, the year before Star Wars. And it's like, everything was still resting upon this sort of, like serial like science fiction serial cinematic language that had been like established in the 30s right that just at this point you know it's almost 1970 just looks so for lack of a better word stale right you know and, and again if the, yeah that and goes if over the whole movie in a little bit uh like juicier maybe we would have ignored it because we ignore it in other movies but in this it's just really kind of uh Ah, uh, yeah. Well, okay, that's what they're doing. Right. Well, so. because so much of the plot, and I'm Real using air quotes because I know you can see me, um, is like people standing back and being like, look at what we have created. Look at all this amazing <laughs> stuff. And that's like half the plot is people just being like, no, 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 look at all this cool shit. And it's like, if the cool stuff looks like, you know, not mind-blowing then it's just dead air uh, <laughs> uh also i know i don't know if we want to just we should briefly mention mention uh joseph cotton um is uh was a very famous actor uh he was in citizen kane yeah um to my knowledge he is not uh in 
in David Fincher's Mank. Uh, he is not in any way. There's no there's no guy like playing Joseph Cotton uh, in in Mank, which is about the making of Citizen Kane. Um, so. You well, know, he but, was uh, he and Wells uh, were connected through because uh, but Sis and Kane, you know, they they were theater people. Yeah, that was the big thing. The Mercury Theater uh, people, you had a whole bunch of radio and theater people doing a movie, and that was a big thing of Sis and Kane. So people, I think, before Kane had heard Orson Welles, they had heard Joseph Cotton, but they actually hadn't seen them outside of like publicity stills. Yeah, um, so that's what got him. Uh, started in the film business, and uh, I'm assuming this is where it ended. <laughs> no, no, there's um, there's another more final ending, um, but you know he had a, a great career in the 30s oh, yeah. and 40s, and even into the 50s. But by the time you get to Latitude Zero, which is 1969, like things aren't doing great. And then, really, one of the final nails in the coffin was he was heavily involved in Heaven's Gate. Um, which was really? a film. Yeah, he played a reverend in wow. uh, Heaven's Gate. Now, I've never seen Heaven's Gate. I've heard from people that I trust that it's actually not that bad, but it's famously sort of or infamous because it essentially ended the age of the auteur director having full financial support from studios. Yeah. Which so it it, it ended yeah. that period yeah. that began really in earnest in like 1968, right around the time of Latitude Zero. Actually, right. that sort of climax was like Godfather, Godfather Two, Mean Streets, you know, yeah. all all those movies, yeah. everything in the 70s that was like great well, and every, like everyone for the most part was making money, you know. Right. Coppola made The Godfather reluctantly, but then he made The Conversation, and they were both financially successful. Uh, Spielberg ended up making a shark movie, and that was successful. And, you know, infamously, 20th Century Fox gave that crazy guy George Lucas, you know, money to make a kid's film. And, uh, oh! After, but we, after, we, he had, after he had proven himself on American Graffiti, which, which made a, a lot of money. Yeah. And is sort of a weird auteur movie. Yeah. Kind of. Yeah, so um, it's like, and, and that's after he had failed with THX. So the thing right. is, a person could fail at a movie and still be given another chance, and and then, you know, and, and then the money was rolling in, and then uh, then Heaven's Gate came, and then Heaven's Sorry, Gate came, and there's been so much said and written about Heaven's Gate, and this is not a Heaven's Gate podcast. It's uh, in theory about Godzilla movies. So we're not going to like heavily go into that here, but if you want to, the information is out there. There's whole documentaries about it, but it's pretty important in the actual history of film and, you know, why you go to a, I mean, I wouldn't go to a theater now, but like, you know, once things clear up here <laughs> and you go back to a theater, it's one of the main reasons why, you know, the choices are like the crudes part two and like Transformers six instead of like a movie like, Oh, I don't know. Scarecrow with Al Pacino and Gene Hackman, you know, like there's a A B C D why all this stuff happened. And like heaven's gate is a big part of it. And that had Joseph cotton, you know, squarely in that film. Um, also, I just want to say Joseph cotton's outfits are stunning. In this film, he wears an ascot. Fabulous. 
in in most of his most of his uh, outfits feature an ascot, which is sort of a scarf like feature. Uh, it's worn by the like damsels in distress in Hammer horror movies after they've been recently bit by vampires to cover up their neck wounds a lot. Uh, but you know, a Charles Nelson Riley would wear one a lot as well, and Joseph Cotton uh, wears one in this film, and he looks fabulous. He looks amazing. Yes. <laughs> it's uh, it's uh, interesting. Yeah, yeah, I he's mean, very uh, he's yeah. very liberated. It's yeah, great. I mean, it feels like it's about to go to Studio Fifty Four. Uh, Absolutely, and God bless him. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> oh, I should also mention that the dude who's like. Uh, the pilot of uh, the Alpha is a, this dude named Kobu, yeah, uh, Hutoshi Ome, and um, I'm sorry, but he's just fat. He's a fat person, and this is not a body shaming. It's not about body shaming. It is about though the costume designers on this film trying to trick us into thinking that Kobu has the traditional strongman type body from like the 40s and 50s from like a circus, but in fact. Kobu just has an enormous beer belly, just a just a huge gut. Like, it's just that's it. He just has a gut. He's not strong. He just has like a huge spare tire down there, and I. It doesn't matter how much he rocks that golden vest and those gold parachute pants. Sorta looks like a genie, but like I'm sorry, Kobu, you need to do a couple of sit-ups, my friend. Yeah. I just had to say that if, if there was going to be one thing to make it into the show, it's that. And Kobu's basically mute. He says a couple of things. It's all in Japanese, but like, right. um, some real random task energy coming off of Kobu, uh, in this movie. That's an Austin Powers reference. Anyways, not important in the least. Yeah. So, um, uh, so, uh, so Liberace's set design and costume design aside, right. uh, we are introduced to Joseph Cotton, um, the leader of the so who plays uh, blah, blah, blah. he <laughs> he plays Mackenzie, and he is the leader of the ship. Uh, he's somehow over two hundred years old. We find right. out as is uh, the the ship Alpha. Uh, yeah, the Alpha was launched in eighteen oh five. Yeah, uh, in this uh, film, and that, and the, that thing. it takes place in 1969, so it's right almost 200 years old. Mackenzie, uh, you know, shows them around the this uh, this bridge, this you know Flash Gordon style bridge with uh, you know cartoonishly large uh, you know buttons and uh, and lights and the, the the TV screen, and he basically tells them about who he is vaguely and what uh and, and the people he represents uh and uh he he seems uh confused by the uh the surface dwellers uh inability to comprehend uh, his right. genius uh, to not to not immediately accept all this ultra fantastical right. information it's just like oh well this is just so you know normal to us right. us that live in latitude zero dun 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 right which and, is where he's taking them right because um, uh jewel he he was also observing the volcano um and it looks like because jewels requires better surgery um they actually have to go to latitude zero so they have to break off the mission uh you know which is nice uh <laughs> right uh it's nice uh they decided to do that for for jewels um because jewels suffered 
serious traumatic brain injuries when right. the diving bells tether like turned into a pinball machine right. and they were all getting beaten around. Just yeah. want to make that clear just so that everything in this goofy ass movie is totally understood. Yes. So despite having a really what looks like adequate sick bay, apparently it's not as adequate as the one in Latitude Zero. Uh, so they make their way and I, I guess somehow uh, through the magic of magic, uh, they are their journey is discovered by the black shark who notifies Caesar Romero, <laughs> who plays Mank. Uh, he and his uh, lovely companion, played by uh, Patricia and Medina. Medina. Who, uh, Mike, do, do you know what the kind of a, a small uh, connection between uh, Miss uh, Medina and uh, Joseph Cotton are? Ooh, were they both in like the Maltese Falcon or something? Uh, well, no, but uh, they're both Orson Welles alumni because Joseph Cotton was in Citizen Kane, 1941, and she was in Mr. Arcardin, 1955, which. According okay. to Jonathan Rosenbaum, is a good movie. Uh, and, okay, uh, I mean, she so. much like Joseph Cotton and Cesar Romero all look like they're in involved in this just to for like just to get paid, right? Um, right. In I particular, mean, yeah. Patricia Medina or Lucretia, as she's yeah. named, looks it, like it, she's like just walked out of a cocktail party from like, you know, sort of the upper class LA scene from like the late sixties. Like she doesn't right. look like a character in a s underwater science fiction thing yeah. at I, all. I think sadly, excluding the, uh, the pilot of the black shark, uh, the other women in this film have kind of been just given the same attention as the set decoration. Oh yeah. Uh, I mean, that, that, that's uh, sadly the way it is. Um, absolutely. No really, like super powerful female characters in this, except for uh, Captain Croiga, captain of the yes. Black Shark. Of Black Shark. She, despite yeah. her sadly very broken English, which really does not work, she at least has an intensity and a ferocity to her character yeah. that it's like when she is on screen, it's like, yes, yes, that's how you do this. Yeah. That's how you act. That's how you create drama. Even yes, um, even though she's speaking phonetically, as is yes. Akira Takarada. Yes, and and all the other Toho regulars that are in this, they're all yeah. they learn their lines phonetically. Right, but you can feel her chutzpah, like she's tried, like and that that at least that that at least gives a couple you know, couple scratch and sniff stickers in my book. It's always immediately compelling, and when she's on the screen, it's like focused and like, oh, there's someone trying to achieve a goal, right? <laughs> and yes. she is because... being so she is actually in the Black Shark, which is just sure. another sub that looks exactly like the Nautilus uh, from you know uh, Twenty Thousand Leagues Under the Sea or the Atragon, um, and it's but it's like the evil Atragon, and yeah. and it's so. Uh, it's uh, she for, is actually in that sub, and yeah. then Caesar Romero is on the place called his headquarters, which is different from Latitude Zero. It's a, it's called Blood Rock, I believe, yeah. and it's just like an island. 
Yeah, I guess. it's adjacent to Skull Island, you know, Skull Island, Blood Rock, you know. It's right. <laughs> you know. Um, I just wanted to briefly say Cesar Romero. For those who don't know, for someone who somehow doesn't know this by now, um, you may know that he played the Joker in the 60s uh, Batman, but what you may not know is that he had a mustache at the time he was cast, and they were like, yeah, you have to shave your mustache. This is the Joker. He doesn't have a, a mustache. And Cesar Romero's like, no, I'm not shaving it. If you want me to shave it, cast someone else. And they were like, okay, we'll make this work. So they would cake his upper lip <laughs> with makeup for every episode to cover up the mustache, which is incredible. Also, yeah. Cesar Romero, at this point in his career, full on just, and he needs that mustache. He needs that mustache because he's every single character he's playing is a mustache twirling villain. Right. Uh, because he's also the bad guy in uh, the Computer Who Wore Tennis Shoes trilogy uh, starring Kurt Russell, which the first film in that uh, trilogy and the third film are both available on Disney Plus right now. And so if you want to see some great ham-fisted, like Cesar Romero, you know, <laughs> uh, setting chewery. Yeah, he's he's good. He's just great. He's it's like he just is right. the Joker. He just right. he's just is the Joker. OK, <laughs> that that is something that he does use to make up for his lack of movement in this movie, because he really does not move. He's kind of just standing and talking a lot. But what kind of breaks from that? dull is the fact that he's given all these juicy lines and he really just chews up the scenery so it, there is a small balance being waged here between the fact that like yeah there is kind of a lack of coverage and dynamism to what's going on but he is uh put, putting a little bit of oomph on it yeah so um, he's, uh, he's, he's doing definitely what he got can. a lot more energy than uh <laughs> Joseph Cotton, who uh, clearly did not get his uh, shipment of uh, of uh, Infowars uh, supplements. <laughs> it, it, that that this predates Infowars, uh, admittedly refreshing and delicious uh, supplements. And we'll be talking a little bit more about those later on. Uh, exciting news about our new sponsors here, but. Um, <laughs> I think back in 1969, it would be like just like orange juice, like squeezed by like Jack LaLanne or some shit. Yeah. I don't yes. know. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, Jack LaLanne. Yeah. Yeah. Because like orange uh, juice was like brand new or something. I don't yeah, know. Yeah, orange juice. Yeah, you just you, you took your Jack LaLanne supplements and uh, ate fish and broccoli and uh, and uh, and yeah, that that's yeah. that's what you did. That's that's what healthy individuals do. Um. But like. <laughs> Joseph Cotton and Cesar Romero are like mortal enemies. They're they're like mirror yeah. opposites, you know, like like Cesar Romero's like the evil counterpoint to Joseph Cotton. Like they both control subs, they both dress sort of right. flamboyantly and kind yeah, of I mean, have like Cesar Romero's got more of the director Krennic look going on for him oh, with the white suit and the white dude, cape. <laughs> like that he looks okay in the second part of this movie. I'm pretty sure that the set, or sorry, the costume designer for Rogue One, uh, a Star Wars story, um, also available on Disney Plus. Uh, follow the money. 
<laughs> his outfit is exact, like to the yeah. stitch. Uh, yeah. The outfit of director Orson Krennic, um, Orson played by Wells, Ben Mendelsohn Joseph in that movie. Cotton. There's a connection. Illuminati confirmed. Exactly. Anyway. It's all connected, guys. It's all connected. Uh, follow the money. But okay. long so, story, slightly abbreviated. Yes, here we go. So, Back on track. So anyway, so they're busy fawning over each other, drinking wine. And there's something to do with the atomic scientists going to the UN, who they haven't captured yet. But right. while they're waiting on that, they realize, you know, Malik knows that Mackenzie is going to latitude zero. So I guess he's... Uh, vulnerable, so he orders the black shark to attack it, to pursue an attack. So they do, and they have a kind of a a, a, a fairly interesting pre-hunt for Red October uh, you know, submarine battle sequence using these really large models, uh, and you know they they dodge the uh, the uh, the torpedoes, and there's a, an earthquake, and uh, you know so there's enough tension to you know keep you focused i will say unfortunately it does ruin it when joseph cotton pushes uh what kobu away and he starts doing the driving leaving everyone else to just kind of sit there and watch him drive the sub yeah. you know he's not there like giving a... orders. there's not like water spilling right. on them there's like nothing but you know you look at atragon everyone's got like a place right. on the ship right you know this is it's exactly as exciting as an episode of star trek where kirk was just like you know i'm driving and everybody shut up and nobody talk you know and it's just like yeah everyone's just standing there staring at kirk you know that's that's what happens in the second part of this um sort of undersea battle there is one thing that i found baffling that happened later on in this when the black shark which i thought they were saying black shard for most of the movie, mm. uh, the evil sub fires uh, heat-seeking missiles at the Alpha, which at the time was still sort of science fiction, but only for like another couple of years because they actually kind of developed heat-seeking missiles to a point where they were actually usable in battle in like the 70s. So this was not that far off at that point, but still sort of, you know, impossible. Um, but the bad sub fires heat-seeking missiles at the good sub (laughs) and (laughs) appears to destroy it, okay? And then, like, two minutes later, it's revealed that the Alpha is fine and Joseph Cotton is still, like, steering the ship and Richard Jekyll's like, what the fuck is happening right now? And I wrote it down. Uh, Joseph Cotton is like... um. It's. I produce that effect not quite from mirrors, is what he says, and it's the first of many points in the movie where it's just I do not know what has happened in the plot, like it just stops right. making sense and it's just like, and there's and they never go back to that, right? Uh, so yeah. awesome. <laughs> Don't think. Keep watching. <laughs> right. Right. Almost as if something has been cut out or something, I don't know, which is entirely possible given the production. But, like, he's just like, it's not quite mirrors. Well, yeah. that's not quite an explanation, Joseph Cotton. Thanks. Right. Um, um, so then they eventually, so they, they dodge the torpedoes and they eventually make it into Latitude Zero, which is an underground 
uh, sorry, underwater domed city, which, you know, conceptually is a nice idea. Yes. Um, unfortunately, as you mentioned before, my kind of the lack of uh, budget is to the detriment because, again, we're kind of made to look at these wondrous things. And, you know, un unlike other movies, other Toho movies where they're just kind of incidental, you're not supposed to, like, the futuristic stuff of, um, of God, of Destroy All Monsters, that, you know, we don't really spend a lot of time focusing on that except for, like, the things that keep the monsters on Monster Island. And then everything else is just like, it's 1999 now. Get over it. We go to space. That's it. Um, they don't focus too much on that stuff. Less, you know, people kind of see like, ah, oh, that doesn't look too futuristic to me. Or that kind of looks cheap. Um, with this, again, because we're supposed to be in awe of all right. these things, it really just kind of feels kind of lackluster. Because we're, again, it's right. like there's nothing to be awed about. Right. They, they are clearly going for, like, and the the level of awe which this is a paradox because this film wouldn't be released for like another 10 years but like the end of close encounters of the third kind when the mothership shows up and you're right. just like oh my god like yeah. this is actually worth it that they've been right. building up to this you know visually or or just something like or many years later like in lord of the rings where you you just you feel part of that world it feels you know lived in um, but the seams are showing here. The seams yeah, are showing, showing and, and showing badly. And again, uh, it, it's just it, to describe it. And there is an artificial sun that they've constructed like Moo or Seatopia style. Right. Um, but it really just looks like a series of quaint English countryside manners that have sort of accentuated partial map paintings to indicate some sort of a large dome shape. Uh, in the background right and everyone there but to make it look like it's not an english village everyone's dressed up like they're uh you know on an episode of ufo uh or you know space 1999 right uh, lots of togas yeah lots of which togas. again yeah gets or, into the zardoz or, territory yeah <laughs> All goes back to zardoz. bring out the sexy stews man also the, the way and, like, the next 20 minutes of the movie is just Joseph Cotton being like, look at how great Latitude Zero is. And that's what it, the place is it, called, Latitude yeah, Zero. Too much expository dialogue. Oh, my and God. Then, like, yes. uh, too much. And then we've got Perry, who's obsessed, you know, like, he wants to find a way to make money off of this because he's a journalist. And, you know, th there's, like, in the hotel room, I guess, because they have so many guests. Uh they, 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 there's like diamonds uh, in like a pl uh, plant pot. Yeah, real and, weird. And uh, cotton is just like, well, you can take some if you want. I mean, their their beauty is their only value to us. He uh, says they use them for shaving. Like he is, he, right? He says they use the diamonds for shaving. I mean, it's super weird. It, it's weird. Yeah, super. So weird. again, it's really hard to get immersed in this world. You know, it's, you know, again, Atragon, we, we like kind of, we kind of get the gist of Moo. We don't spend too much time focusing on Moo because we'd realize it's a set. Uh, right. And, and we're spending so much time here. It's just like, yeah, this is a set. This is a set. Exactly. These are and matte paintings. I also <laughs> get, 
in addition to sort of the somewhat inability of the filmmakers for budgetary or contractual breaking stuff from the other studio and all that other stuff for whatever those reasons are the how it translates into the viewers you just have more time you're not in awe okay you're not in awe at all of latitude zero so you only the mind ends up my mind ended up focusing on the ethical implications of the existence of such a place and it mm -hmm. really ended up like bumping up against a uh, sort of a vibe of like the village from the prisoner mm -hmm. um which if y'all are not familiar it was a science fiction uh series one of the first if not the first actual mini series with patrick mcguin from right around the same time 68 69 and um very similar premise really is like a guy gets knocked out wakes up in this sort of ideal village area that's not unlike latitude zero and it's like oh yeah joseph cotton goes to great lengths to say like oh yeah you're free to go whenever you want to but it seems a little bit more insidious than that because like latitude zero is chock full of like all these scientists and people who are like thought to have been killed in uh um, oh, right. yeah or right, defected or defected and, uh, yeah, which is a like definite a, prisoner energy there and yeah, like well i guess in the pre-internet age it it can kind of work better this idea can work better because it's like oh someone can just disappear and go yeah, yeah he says that he plays off the east and the west like the 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 warsaw pack and nato off each other by saying oh one person says they defected here and the other person said they defected there but really they came here and um it's it, yeah it, to me questions immediately came to mind of like okay you've got these scientists and people some of them i guess maybe are defecting other people he's saying arrived in a very similar manner to these three where there was some sort of seagoing mishap or disaster at sea and p these people were saved and brought to latitude zero where they instantly become uh immortal like they don't right. age yeah and they don't die right. and they don't have to worry about food or whatever because they have uh, who cares the point is it's yeah. like it seems it would only take a very small twist to just sort of look at this in just a little bit different way and have this whole latitude zero place is very could be potentially very insidious and right. like maybe caesar romero is right to want to destroy it right. <laughs> like so um i mean you kind of wish he does because this just goes on and on and oh, on and there's a scene where they goes they on forever food. And, uh, and, uh, oh, and, uh, and, uh, they Dr. have like, Sarazawa uh, from, uh, Godzilla has a cameo. Uh, that's right. Akihiro, uh, he, he, he plays the doctor that helps, uh, Jules recover. And, uh, so the, the, all, while all this, uh, expository dialogue, that's the word I'm looking for. While all this expository dialogue is going on, um, we, we learn from Joseph Cotton that, one of his associates is going to America on a ship and uh, Cesar Romero wants this atomic scientist 
and his daughter for reasons. And uh, oh well, so, because he's developed a vaccine to help vaccinate people from the effects of radiation. Right. Which in their mind, <laughs> this is pretty awesome and it's insanely flawed logic. But it's like okay, if the enemy country vaccinates itself from radiation then it can just initiate a nuclear war and it doesn't matter if like the rival country bombs them into oblivion they will be vaccinated as if the radiation fallout from a nuclear war would be like the main problem and it's like i i think maybe the main problem is that all society and all systems of 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 everything has been completely destroyed right <laughs> <laughs> the fabric. I mean, it'd be a nice little bonus together, <laughs> right? Um, but like, life, yeah, you'd still but, be in uh, trouble. But a, but a vaccine, yes. yes. Uh, <laughs> um, so the black shark is sent to intercept him, kidnap him, and bring him to uh, what Blood Island again? Blood, blood, uh, <laughs> blood rock, blood Cesar rock, Romero's. Yes. HQ. Down at Bloody Rock. Down at Bloody Rock. Anyways, um, so they, they, they end up there, and director Krennic Romero is uh, laughing maniacally as he brings them in. Um, oh, and uh, because uh, Patricia Medina, well, what's her character's name again? Sorry. Lucretia. Lucretia, yeah. She's a lucreting evil. Uh, she really wants to get rid of the <laughs> captain of the Black Shark. So, um, so Cause, she just because she's I, horny. Right? Yeah, it's she's just horny, total, you know? like, flat, like, sexist female characterization. It's like, oh, there's another woman. She must I'm hate a, her because, I'm you a, know, yeah. we assume, and the script assumes, that Captain Cruega wants to sleep with Cesar Romero as well, which turns out to be correct. Yes. But it's still like so shallow. So even though uh, Captain Croega uh, uh, Cro uh, brings uh, these or uh, bring, brings bring the, bring these <laughs> it doesn't matter names mean nothing uh, <laughs> that bring uh, these two prisoners uh, to Malik. Uh, he rewards her by putting her in a cage, and then he takes uh, the scientist and his daughter into this uh somewhat nate yes. oh my god let's we can't gloss over the insanity of that scene okay so oh, no, we're not glossing over this we you no are, no, are no, we no. The, about, like but, but he brings them into the room yes just where uh caesar romero is acting like um robert de niro towards the end of goodfellas when he's like trying to get Lorraine Bracco to try on those dresses just around the corner when clearly he just wants to like, you know, whack her or whatever, right, by right. which I mean, have her killed. Yeah. And, uh, Cesar Romero definitely putting off that energy and like Captain Croega totally not, oblivious to the whole thing. I mean, Cesar Romero's right. like, ah, yes, my little one, my you know, now one. it is time for your reward. <laughs> and she's and just got, like following along about... with them the whole way. Right. Okay, so but yeah. not that part, but like the cage in the yeah, room. Cage, which it's like she's already in a room. Why would you? Right. Okay, I just want to be clear. Yeah. Caesar Romero, like, escorts her to a room. Yeah. Which appears to be just a steel cube, a box, right. and it's like, 
and then he like locks the door. So she right. is secure in the room. And then to drive the point home, yes, he pushes a button next to the door and a large what appears to be a bird cage falls on her, yeah. like additionally trapping her. And that's when she yeah. knows she's been caught and double crossed. It's you know insane. Yeah. I so that insanity happens, which is then followed by more insanity because he then takes uh, the professor and his daughter into a nice room next door uh, for whatever reason. And he basically gives his evil, you know, you will be staying there until you give me the formula, blah, blah, blah. And, oh, you can stay here overnight. He presses a button, a button, and the 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 wall opens and you see <laughs> a monstro you see uh bat mutants you see half people that are half mad they look like a a roger corman version of the bat guys from Beastmaster. like you expect them to hug the professor and he turns into liquid ooze and bones like that's but they they look like rejects from like the sid marty croft lidsville universe of like <laughs> If someone was like, hey, Sid and Marty, we need you to make, uh, you know, someone who looks like Batman or whatever. And this is what they'd come up with. They look like a high school or perhaps a middle school production of Rodan and like the Rodan suit. Um, and that, you know, that they put off to making until like the day before. Right. They do not like it is not great. It's yeah. not great. They're creepy, like and and also because of the fact that they kind of look like the bigger kaiju, it, it kind of throws everything off mm -hmm. scale wise. Yeah, and they're making like the same noises, like they're making oh, yeah. I think Baragon noises. Baragon, yeah, that would yeah. make sense. Yeah, uh, it just yeah. So I mean, creepy, terrifying, yes, but not in like the way that I think they were going for. Yeah, just uncanny <laughs> yeah. valley. <laughs> more, more it's sort of like a David Lynch way of upsetting, which is yeah. still upsetting, yeah. but not in the way they were going for. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah. Oh, but the best line is when the professor says, you know, he says to Romero, he's like, you're a monster. And he says, no, I'm a genius. Oh, my God. Yeah, best that part line. is amazing. That part is great. That part is great. Yeah, no. That's correct. Uh, that so part is awesome. There's some there's some classic Romero scene chewing right there. Uh, like this movie is worth it just to watch Caesar Romero. I want to yeah. make that clear before we tear it down anymore. Yeah. If you are a fan of this type of thing, you must see this film just for Caesar Romero's scenery chewing is yeah. like completely off the scales. Or if you want to save uh, others from this insanity, just one of you, uh, you young YouTubers out there, just uh, do a uh, all Caesar Romero cut of this movie. <laughs> just <laughs> call it the Caesar no, salad zero, or something. Caesar I don't know. Romero moments. You know, that's it. That's all people need to see of this movie. Nothing else. <laughs> the the hail Caesar cut, okay, of latitude zero. Um, yeah, but uh, at this point, so he kidnaps a scientist. And he's like, you will tell me the formula to, you know, for the vaccine against radiation uh, within seven hours, I think, or else I'm going to surgically turn you and your daughter into these shitty Batman things. Yeah. That's the threat. Not just like I'm going to shoot you with a gun. 
<laughs> but like I'm gonna turn you into these reject from uh, Party USA, seventy five percent off the week after Halloween. Deals. Right. These uh, uh, rejects from the Menagerie episode of Star Trek. Oh yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's not that bad. You can... <laughs> like, uh, yeah, no, they look. They, they don't look great. Um. So yeah, and so now we come to the part of the film where Joseph Cotton, in all of his infinite wisdom, is like he becomes alerted by the scientist dude that Cesar Romero has in his capture because he turns on a homing device in his glasses to like, so that's when Joseph Cotton becomes aware that the scientist dude has been kidnapped and he's like, well, we have to immediately mount a rescue mission. Uh, By this time, uh, the uh, Dr. Jules uh, has, has, you know, recovered from his massive brain trauma and has rejoined the group. And he's uh, suddenly taken to uh, Dr. What was her name again? Dr. Set Dressing? Uh, uh, Dr. Uh, resting Chloroform Face. There we go. So he, <laughs> she he, has a name. He, she has a name. She, she's probably a nice person. Linda Haynes. Yes. Hines. Dr. Oh, Ann Barton. No, she's probably great. It's she's just, probably an amazing she's person. She's, better, she's a better person than you or I. We can say that okay. unequivocally. Okay. Like as far she as real life goes. But rolling thunder. Okay, she she can she can act. Just she was not used in this movie. She was in Rolling she Thunder. W- oh yes. Shit. Okay. Yeah. So she can act. She can definitely act. Yeah, that actually makes it she, worse. She just was not used. I mean, so can uh, Patricia Medina. Uh, but you know, again, just kind of put to the side. I can understand why, in terms of narrative, we would have the three gentlemen from the Diving Bell assist Mackenzie. However, it does seem a little weird that Mackenzie doesn't have a special group of, like, Latitude Zero Marines or Scouts or, you know, or, you know, I guess in his case, Fun Buddies uh, to, uh, you, <laughs> swingers, you know, fellow to. swingers. So, yeah, the, uh, the, 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 the Swinger the, Scott fellow, Squad. Yeah. Yes. He uh, <laughs> doesn't have an Ascot Squad. That, <laughs> the, the Ass Squad. <laughs> oh, that works on multiple levels. No, yeah. it's it's so weird and stilted the way it happens because like yeah. Joseph Cotton gets the distress signal and Doctor Jules just walks in after miraculously having his brain healed, okay, yeah. and, and then he's um, immediately Doctor Jules, who may still be suffering from brain trauma, volunteers the three civvies as it were for this mission which could be a suicide mission like they they have no understanding of this world or even like what's really going on with caesar romero or any of this shit right. and they're all just like yeah this should be fun yeah so uh so mckenzie uh or the ascot i don't know maybe it was just a little too tight around his neck and the blood's not flowing but he suggests they all take a you know, a, a special, uh, they, they, they decide to go to a hot tub, uh, you know, which, uh, you know, I mean, hey, I wouldn't say no to that. Right. Uh, this is this you know. is where the sort of latent homoeroticism is stretched to its breaking point. And really, you just objectively, you just stand back and looking at this and be like, oh, no, this guy's gay. And he just wants to see all of them naked. Because yes. the way the scene is set up is, you know, uh... Joseph Cotton has just taken a luxuriating bath 
right. this yellow viscous discharge fluid in a in a what looks like a, a hot tub or like a right. you know whatever a jet tub and that's set it into the ground um and he's just sort of putting on his robe okay right. as the scene starts you know they cut to jo- literally joseph Cotton just sort of leisurely putting on his robe and being like all right gentlemen you see how it's done it's- like like Akira Takarada and the rest of them had to like had never seen someone take a bath before. Like they had right. to stop what they were doing and watch Joseph Cotton take a bath. Yeah. Which is like what is happening? What? Yeah, you feel like this is something you you feel like uh, it was just like, you know, why need to uh, explain this? Just say get in the water and uh right. and get out. Right, exactly. Um, like you've all take you're all adults. You're not yeah. newborn babies that are like less than 15 minutes old. So yeah. you've, you've taken a bath before <laughs> like, yeah, I mean, it, and it's not even, you know, it's not, it's not like after he gets out, Joseph Cotton begins asking them whether they prefer snails or oysters. Uh, but uh, okay. I will say, all right, maybe this is, this is just a, um, because the bathhouse culture in Japan is huge and, right. and it's a real cultural thing. Yes. And and um and where this scene, I'm sure, was just like people were watching. They're just like, yeah, they're taking baths together. What's who cares? Well, I did that last week or whatever. But well, when yeah, it's but an American why. production, and most of the characters are American, right. that seemingly just like normal societal thing of like the communal bathhouse culture is completely lost on an American audience. And it just seems like these guys are getting into some real ice storm swinger territory here where they all just have to, they, they have to watch Joseph Cotton luxuriate in this bath for a while. You know, yeah. it's part of, it's part of the latitude like, zero experience. Yeah. For the, I don't know, but it's like, but you feel like, I mean, at least if they were going to do a real Japanese bathhouse, at least they'd be, you know, one of them would be like scrubbing each other or something. There'd be some reverence. This is just kind of like, you know, why does this scene take this long? Right. Because like, it's like a sequence. Again, this was just an in and out thing. But right. no, like this movie like dwells on this. Absolutely. And, like, and uh, okay. You know, oh, and um, the reason is because it, this bath will give them special powers, which uh, where have I heard that line before? Exactly. I, I do want to say that for, you know, for plausible, for the purposes of plausible deniability, they do have uh, Dr. Barton, a.k.a. resting chloroform face, comes in and she, like, takes the bath with them all in the same tub at the same time. And then uh, Dr. Jules is like, ladies first to, like, have her go out. And she's like, uh, I think you guys should go first ignoring the fact that they all just saw her naked come into the bath. I don't understand like the logic behind any of those lines. It's, it makes zero sense. Um, and then, so yeah, they've been Latitude dipped. Zero sense. There we go. They've been <laughs> That's dipped the title of the episode. <laughs> in this sort of pea, yellow, green, frothy discharge uh, of Joseph Cotton's own recipe. Maybe who knows, who knows For what's happening water at this point. Day. Uh- <laughs> I mean, this, this kind of brings us back to Rebirth of Mothra too. When like that little Furby guy it was like also like a window to like you know water sports sort of in that like there's a real sort of seedy undercurrent 
going yeah. on in some of these movies. That's yes. like yes, <laughs> much like the one they were, uh, much like the undercurrent they were uh, studying at the beginning of this film, absolutely which completely forgotten about. There is uh, definitely a undercurrent of water sports going on absolutely. at the a lot. Warn your children. <laughs> absolutely, we we know there's there's. There's something if you dig if you dig deep enough on deviant art, there's something. <laughs> there's some sort of representation. It might take a week to find it, but <laughs> this seat has not gone unnoticed. But okay, so they all bathed in front of each other for a while and it has made them bulletproof. That's the thing. Like they get out of the thing and then like this rando with a gun, uh, who's wearing like a red jumpsuit, just has like a uh, a James Bond like yeah. He's one of uh, he's one of Nelson's henchmen from uh, Mothra. Oh, there you go. As is the professor. As is the the, the radiation. Yes. Uh, professor. They're both. They were both Nelson's henchmen. Yes. Okay. Um, and they. And, but uh, this guy is just some random guy. Just Joseph Cotton like gives the signal, and this guy shoots Joseph Cotton. And like, uh, what's his face from the Watchmen? He catches the bullet. Okay. The comic book in the movie i guess not the not the hbo max uh series uh and then the guy just meticulously goes through and shoots the other three leads with the gun and it's like and they're all they're all bulletproof now because of this magic fluid that they've all just had soaked in and they're yeah you know epidermis So then after uh, learning that they're immortal, uh, Joseph Cotton then gives them these special golden suits that look uh, not too dissimilar from the ones from uh, – they're they're more bedazzled versions of the ones from uh, – whatchamacallit? Destroy All Monsters. Uh, This movie has destroyed my brain. And uh, he shows them like the weapons features, which are in the fingers – and uh, so you've got like a, a gun, and you've got a and you got a flamethrower, yeah, all in like fingers. A laser, and, yeah. a flamethrower. I think there was something else, but it's like redundant, or it's like gas. It was it's like, like a, it was a, it was a bullet gun. There was like it actually shot like exploding bullets. Wasn't there like a a nerve agent though that they I don't think they try to use on the <clears throat> unfortunate rat people that come later oh, yeah. on in this epic. Um, <laughs> You can see the zippers. Um, <laughs> that's a big toho, you know, no, no there. You can see the zippers on these mouse people. Um, more on that later. But, um, yeah, no, it's like a nerve agent, a laser, and like a flamethrower, all emanating from the tips of these gloves, these special, like, weapon gloves, which is, I don't know, a, a sort of a unique take on... Um, carrying around it's in substitute of carrying around a bunch of hardware so and they all have jetpacks as well oh yeah and jetpacks as you do and Uh, kobu is coming as well yeah kobu is coming as well uh and and so is uh yeah and so is the doctor so uh they all enter the ship and make their way to the blood Blood, island blood rock Blood yeah. Rock. There we go. Yeah. Uh, so they make their way to Blood Rock. Meanwhile, at Blood Rock, this is the uh, this is the most insane. Meanwhile, of meanwhile, all time. Meanwhile, at the 
At the League of Doom, uh, Caesar Romero is then cackling wildly as he uh, brings uh, the professor and his daughter to witness him, uh, for some reason, taking uh, Captain uh, Curio's uh, brain. Coega, doesn't matter, Correga. but uh, <laughs> I'm probably saying it wrong as well. It's K R O I G A. Coega. I have K-U-R-O-I. So that's where the issue comes from. So, uh, <laughs> so um, yeah, we're probably <laughs> both wrong. Yeah. Anyways, so he, he takes uh, the Black Shark captain. He says he wants to take the Black Shark captain's uh, brain and put it into a lion's. Right. Uh, oh, and not just that. And then he, he wants to take uh, – the, there's also a, uh, a vulture – and he wants, or a condor, and he wants to take the uh, the the wings of the condor and add it to the lion. Right. So it will be a lion condor griffin with a human brain, and uh, it, for for reasons of evil. Uh, right. He's taking the brain out of this person who he just betrayed in spectacular fashion. Right. Who is also so in love with him. Right, uh, who did her job correctly? Who like, did her job correctly? Yeah. And her, her reward for this is being having her brain put into a lion with condor wigs grafted onto the back of it, which he then injects with a serum that he says will make it grow at least, not limited to, but at least three times larger than it is right now. Sort of right. jacking it up to sort of kaiju size, kind of. Yeah. And what could go wrong, by like, the way? Perfect yeah. plan. And, oh, and he expects to command like this and have it be like an emissary of his will and, and a weapon of his. That's right. Cesar Romero's plan. To send as your emissary as a Griffith with the brain of someone you just betrayed, because right. that makes sense. I mean, they, they certain, that brain certainly won't harbor any anger or bitterness. Right. Uh, <laughs> it's um, the perfect plan. So, yeah, so that's going on, and uh, Cesar Romero's cackling. Uh, the, the, the alpha eventually makes its way to Blood Rock, and uh, Mackenzie and team uh, make their ascent uh, on the large rocks, and they begin making their way to the headquarters. Right, the one so sort this, of piece of blood rock that isn't just barren jagged rock that it looks like right. it at least has some pieces of a building built into the side of it um, right and so so malik is performing surgery laughing the professor is constantly saying don't do it the daughter is just wailing hysterically yeah. and then this is intercut with uh, cotton and crew uh trying to get to them and Malik, you know, th there's first a magnetic thing that fucks with their belts, and right. then they have to get over that. And then there's, well, you, you want to talk about the rats? Yeah, well, just they are go further into this cave. Again, they're trying to just get to this one building, and they have jetpacks. So yeah. they could just fly. But for some reason, they decide to go on foot, and they're in a cave seemingly going in the opposite direction of where they should be going, which is maybe climb over the mountain. Right. But, um, 
and all of a sudden these these just men in in giant mouse suits i'm like i don't even know if they're supposed to be giant mice in the movie they might just be maybe caesar romero's kink is just dressing men up as animals because like as far as like tohu men in suit tech goes these guys are not not great again you can see their zippers very plainly on the back of their suits um yeah you know not great and and um joseph cotton kind of you know and and i think dr jules mason gets in on this they do some of the finger lasers on them and kind of fuck them up a little bit oh yeah and again like they wouldn't be that bad if we didn't have to see so much of them but it's like it's again this movie doesn't seem to know how to balance you know spectacle and practical and uh you know, how much you can, uh, how much an audience is willing to believe before they're just like, ah, no. And this is like weird spectacle. Like why not just have Cesar Romero have just like, like the standard James Bond villain has like a, just an army of dudes wearing like the same outfit. Like why not just have them fight that to make the choice to have them fight these mice people. Yeah. It's just so weird. Right. Um, and then one of them hurts their foot in a vat of lava. And then... They, uh, conservatively, I could talk about this sequence for two hours. Um, but I'll try to, I'll try to like, yeah. <laughs> cut it down. Please do. Basically, Kobu sees a river of uh, purple stuff. And uh, he's like... And it's bubbling by the way, and it has steam coming out of it. And he decides to walk across, to like wade into it. And again, all of these guys, including Kobu, have jetpacks. Okay? Mm-hmm. And Kobu puts his foot into this substance and it immediately like starts melting or whatever. Yeah. And like, it's just like, yeah, man, just use the fucking jetpack to fly. What, what are you, what? What is this team? Who are yeah. these people? What are we watching? Exactly. And he's supposed <laughs> like I could understand if it was one of the main three. Yeah, you, know? you would expect Kobu has been a veteran. He's been at McKenzie's side. Like they've been doing this for years. You know, they're a two man squad. You know, that's right. the reason why the you know, that's the reason why it's just them and not like a group of Latitude Zero. Right, like uh, scouts, these, like. Joseph Cotton is 200 years old. I assume right. Kobu is like also like at least 150 years old. Right. And this is not their first rodeo. They've gone on like thousands of missions. Yeah. And it's the, like, yeah. They, they lack the one that fucked up his leg because he's the noob. He's the journalist. And he's right. like, you know, like, oh, he tries to get a photo or something and then slips and nearly yes. fucked his foot. Like, yes, that would make that. sense. That would make sense. This, like, Kobu's lack of guile in this scene is stunning it's you watch it and it's unreal you're just like it's like the filmmakers have never seen a single action sequence in a single film (laughs) and it's honda you know he he co-directed ron yeah (laughs) you know like the battle sequences from ron he knows what the fuck is happening you know and uh again it, maybe this is just because of budget, but it's like this is a character issue. This is a character. While we have many issues with like how things were filmed and special effects, that can be, I guess, you, you can 
not give it a pass, but you can at least understand it. This is something where it's like, what? What? <laughs> Why him? Why this? Jetpacks. Right. Um, so, God, <laughs> this is just, it's so ludicrous. Um, so then the, I guess the, the surgery is complete. Uh, and, uh, so, uh, the, the, the King Midas from Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, uh, was it Midas or, uh, I, all I know from Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer is, um, Yukon Cornelius and the Island of Misfit Toys. Yeah. And there's that one elf who wants to become a dentist, which is like a real hoot because like he's an, he's an elf. Why does he want to become a dentist? It's good stuff. It tracks. It's good. So, uh, it holds up. So anyways, so King, we'll just say King Midas from the Island of Misfit Toys. That's hilarious, though. Yeah, because he looks like yeah. he's a griffin. Because King Midas yeah. is a griffin. This exactly. thing is a griffin. Yeah. And That's sadly, very good, there's Nate. no Charlie, because <laughs> nobody wants a Charlie in the box. Uh, oh, yeah. And that one, uh, like, tr- wagon with, like, the square wheels or whatever. Yeah. Nobody wants a choo-choo train with square wheels. And That's the right. Clubs. That's right. And uh, and how about a boat that won't sink and float? Um, anyways, the uh, so King Midas flies out, but he hasn't grown to the size that Caesar Romero that Malik wants it to, and uh, she's just kind of like sitting there. And Romero and uh, Malik seems uh, perturbed to say the least that uh, she isn't immediately uh, killing uh, right. McKenzie and his and and, and company. Right. Uh, just kind of so like, surprised. Yeah. So yeah. So <laughs> eventually, uh, the Mackenzie and crew make it into the uh, because of the the lack of uh, real danger from the rats, the lava, or the griffin. <laughs> right. They eventually make it into the lab, and uh, I don't even know how the sequence really begins. First, the big bats start attacking, right. and and. Really, and against like most Toho, uh, again, this is another area where like the special effects just fall apart. Because you know, I've watched Godzilla versus Mothra numerous times, many and times. You really don't see the or excuse me, Mothra versus Godzilla numerous times, and you really don't see any strings. It's amazing, you know, uh, just like how flawless how Mothra looks like. It's really flying. There's a scene where uh, one of the bats flies 15 feet. And you could see the strings. You yeah. could see the strings. It's like, what? Yeah, and <laughs> like, trying. no, this scene is so goofy because, and Cesar Romero, we should, I guess, say that this this whole area sort of just looks like a, kind of a Frankenstein lab with a sort of a balcony over it where the, the doctor and his uh, daughter are being held by the, the Batman. And as soon as the Cotton Club Encore makes its, you know, <laughs> debut, as it were, uh, through a very conveniently placed window that they can all just jetpack into, uh, and they're there, the Bat people kind of, like, throw the doctor and his daughter aside and start, like, fighting them. And there's, like, all of a sudden there's, like, 15 of them. And, you know, they do some stuff. They, like, you know, kind of, like, flap on them a little bit. But mostly... The guys just, um, you know, laser them with their finger lasers eventually. That's yeah, kind of what happens. Finger banged. 
Anyways, they get finger. They get. They all get finger banged. Thank you, Nate. Um, and these guys have gone from researching DSLs to finger banging in under 24 <laughs> hours. A very exciting time for this group of uh, young scientists and this reporter. Uh, and also, okay, so they kill all the bad people. Again, the Griffin is doing zero. It's just like licking itself, giving itself a bath outside. It's just sitting there like a stuffed lion from a carnival. Okay. Right. <laughs> it is doing zero. Um, and so Cecil Romero, so plan A, giant bats. Okay. That fails. And Cesar Romero, on his way to in his little escape door or whatever, he's like, ah, time for plan B, normal-sized bats. <laughs> and this is a betrayal on, uh, on almost unimaginable levels of the escalation of conflict in, a, yeah. in the climax of a film. Yeah. I, I think, Nate, you went over this in surgical fashion on our second episode talking about uh, Godzilla raids again, as far as like building tension and the right. second plan and the final plan and all this stuff. Like the fact that he's like giant mutant man sized bats didn't do the trick time to release just regular bats. Uh, these guys come on. And, and the yeah. way the bats are depicted first of all they're done with kind of a they're, they're sort of superimposed it's like an optical uh right. if i had to guess they probably released bats in front of like a silver sort of screen or like a green screen it would have been a balloon screen back in the 60s and probably did a negative take of that yeah may have been the same technology from the beginning of uh matango where they superimposed the the on the boat sails and all that stuff but like this scale is completely wrong on these bats they look like emperor moths <laughs> you know they they look teeny they're like the size of like you know they look I very don't know, like a like a like a bookmark or right. like a like an index card they don't look like real bats they they right. like they look very swaddable they're, they're distractingly small. Yeah. You look at it and instantly, on a lizard brain level, you're like, that is not real. Real bats are larger than that. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so <laughs> it's not even like, they're not, it's not even like normal bats. It's like super easily killable small bats is the backup plan. Right. What is happening? <laughs> you know, uh. like... The world may never know. Oh, my know. God. This, you know, again, it's one of those times where it's like, is the movie trying to drive us insane? Right. Because we're reasonable men. But this is yeah. not reasonable. So, um, Director Krennic, make, uh, so Director Krennic escapes, and, uh, and Mackenzie and crew slowly make their way back to the Alpha, now with the professor and whiny daughter in tow. Um, they begin to get in right as the black shark slowly veers around the corner of Blood Rock. And they get in and I, I guess kind of have a uh, not really a 
dogfight. They, they just kind of, uh, well, Cesar Romero's shooting at them. Right. And... He shoots um, a confetti bomb at them at one point. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Very, very, very Joker appropriate. Um, yeah. So this happens, and then there's still that magnetic force going on betwixt the rock, the rock and the submarines. And on top of that, the 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 Griffith, uh, rightly so, begins attacking the Black Shark. Now I want to stop you there. It's a Griffin, O N, Griffith is um like john candy's character from planes trains and automobiles all right continue <laughs> so john candy no uh the the griffin king Midas, there it is. uh charlie in the box uh begins attacking uh the black <laughs> you <shark. Cornelius. laughs> you gold uh bumbles bounce anyways that was a japanese production did you know that yeah that was yeah. uh rankin bass we talked about that like three years ago when we were doing King Kong Escapes. Did we? Oh, wow. Yes. Uh, boy. It's okay. I uh, forgot to. Yeah. <laughs> Anyways. Yeah. So, yes. So, uh, they, uh, they they fight. Uh, eventually, the turret is destroyed and with Cesar Romero in it. And the Alpha... M- jettisons itself away from the rock so it doesn't get caught up in the magnetic field yeah it it flies away it It goes full atragon yeah that's right and um yeah the griffin actually goes down to the black shark and like puts its paws on the gun that caesar romero is controlling outside (laughs) or it's exposed you know, yeah, it's, it's the so dumb. Turret. And, <laughs> it's this uh, exposed turret, right? Right, and all his men are afraid, and of course, right. since you know, which this makes sense. Yeah, it doesn't make a lot of sense when Mackenzie is doing everything, but this is the fact that the rest of uh, Malik's crew is afraid, and he's like, "Give me that." You know, that's it's like, okay, that's a bad guy thing. That makes yeah. sense. That I, makes sense. I, I get why he's in this position because it's like, oh, you, you fools, run, run! I will do this myself. You know, and, and then, of course, he gets his comeuppance. It's like, OK, right. that makes sense. And I'll give that a pass. The Griffin comes down and take actually takes the laser, redirects it up to the mountain and slices off a bunch of rocks and causes an avalanche that then falls down and uh, destroys Cesar Romero, tragically. And also the black shark blows up. And then the entire goddamn island just explodes because it's a Toho movie. It's just like, you don't need a reason. It just blows up. Don't That's think about it. Oh, like also... A, um, like McBain. It's a <laughs> right. In, in the uh, previous scene when uh, the the Cotton Club Encore was fighting the Batman, um, uh, Cesar Romero accidentally uh, stabbed Lucretia with a oh, knife. Right. Because, and like, Akira Takarada, like, threw her, like, Paul Verhoeven style, like, human shield... <laughs> into a rushing Caesar Romero who had his little knife out. And uh, she immediately forgives him, though, as she's dying. She's like, I yeah. know you didn't mean it. And he's like, I really didn't. <laughs> it's like the most serious what? scene in the movie. 
it's like the best acting in the movie. And then I guess because she's really a bajillion years old, she like just turns to dust. She doesn't yes. even turn to a skeleton. She turns yes. to dust. Um, they have the Christopher Lee death from Dracula, the first Hammer Dracula movie, like where it's just like just turns into ash. Yeah. Um, that part is cool and weird. Yep. And like, I wish there was more shit like that in this movie that was like, right. yeah, okay, cool and weird, but makes sense in a yep. sort of adventure movie context and doesn't break fundamental rules of storytelling. Right. Yeah. Weirdly. Uh, okay. So, uh, pretty straightforward. And then from here, uh, yeah, they go back to latitude zero. Um, Perry wants to go back up to the surface with his camera and his diamonds so he can live out the life of a millionaire and I guess not have to answer to, uh, you know, his boss Joseph anymore. So, oh, right. Sorry, his boss up. I mean, I think he also wants to leave Latitude Zero just because it's a weird place. You should also say that there's like people walking around in like horse and buggy, like 1800s attire as well. Because as Joseph Cotton puts it, some people just don't want to change. They want to stay in the clothes that they came in like 150 years ago. So there's some weird Greenfield Village energy there as well. I don't know if anyone other than people living in Michigan got that reference, but like, um, there you have it. He wants out. Um, Richard Jenko wants out. They put him in a, a what? Uh, a submersible, and he ends up going back to the surface, and he's picked up by. And uh, remember, Ken and Jules uh, wants to get his groove on, and I guess Ken likes science. So um, they stay, Perry goes to the surface, and he's picked up by a naval vessel. And this is where an already confusing and baffling movie somehow cranks this confusion to 11. It, right. it, it, this is a twist ending to, uh, to really ruin all twist endings. This is a twist ending that sort of is done by someone who I don't think understands what twist endings are for, what they're supposed to achieve. So Richard Jekyll gets back on this ship, um, you know, above ground, like sea level, like it's a, it's an actual nautical vessel. They're not in latitude zero anymore. Um, he gets picked up and the, uh, JSDF ship captain is played by Akira Takarada with a mustache. Right. And you see that and you're like, what the fuck is happening? Uh, and then he gets taken to like the bridge or whatever. And the commander of this ship is a guy named Glenn McKenzie. Now to be clear, and he's played by Joseph Cotton and to be clear, the guy we've been following the whole movie is captain Craig McKenzie, the captain of the Alpha. And then Cesar Romero shows up as a guy called Lieutenant Hastings. And he's they're all dressed totally normal. Um, Cesar Romero is acting like a normal person. He's not talking in his Cesar Romero voice. He's just like speaking like a human. Um, and, and Perry so, 
is trying to like uh, show that like, oh yeah, I've been to a weird place and look at the diamonds and he opens his tobacco pouch and uh, there's just tobacco. There's just tobacco. tobacco. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and they're, they're trying to do, and he gets his film developed and all the pictures are blank. Cause they kind of have this montage towards the end where before, uh, he leaves latitude zero, he takes a bunch of pictures of like, all these women just jumping on trampolines and um as you do also an insane amount of side boob from the professor's daughter uh in the dress like Ugh. insanely scandalous for 1969 right. but they're like having a picnic or whatever right um again as you do as you do <laughs> uh but like he took the point is they had this whole montage of him taking pictures he gets the pictures developed once he's on the ship at the end, and they're all blank. It's not like they're ruined or overexposed or whatever. They're just blank. It's just like new film. So there's some serious Wizard of Oz action going on here where it's like he really just somehow got knocked out and came to on a raft and made all that shit up somehow in reverse because he's never met these three people before. But, and that would make sense, that would be a sort of successful twist ending, which right. admittedly wouldn't make any sense, because, like, he hasn't seen these guys yet, so how could he, like, have a dream incorporating their likeness into it? But, you right. know, we'll allow it. But fucking then, <laughs> double twist, uh, there's been, like, a bunch of diamonds in uh, Richard Jenkel's, like, bank account in new york like deposited into his bank account by some mysterious force that like they the captain glenn mckenzie and um caesar romero aka lieutenant hastings um have this sort of casual conversation like oh by the way <laughs> this guy's bank account just had a bunch of money like a bunch of diamonds deposited into it so it's like i guess it really did happen and all this like double casting stuff is just to fuck with us. What? Uh, yeah. Again, I, I don't. don't. Yeah, it defies logic, reason, screenplay analysis. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's just uh, that's that's the 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 twist of a twist. Um, so, and uh, yeah, I don't know what they're going for there. Yeah, it's very I, disappointing. I, I don't. I could kind of understand if the ending was just Joseph Cotton on the ship and he was like, you know, he winks at him. Yeah. And it's like, yes, I've secretly been doing both worlds at the same right. time, you know, and I think now it's time for the people underwater to meet the people above and we'll create a new, you know, new piece or something like that, you know. I assumed that's where they were going with it. Yeah. But and, then it's uh, also weird that like Caesar Romero would be alive and yeah, then also well, exactly. a good guy. He he wouldn't be there. Like that's the right. thing. Like it would make sense if it was just Joseph Cotton and the last image was just him winking uh, or something like that. But this is like no, this doesn't make sense. <laughs> but then it's we get the sort of stilted, weird double zoom out shot of the ship clearly being filmed from a helicopter out at sea and then the end and that's latitude zero that's so latitude zero 
So uh, I guess there's, you know, there's another one of those movies that's just like, oh, I, I, I need to see that. And now I kind of see why it's not a movie that's been readily available, yeah. uh, really, of all the Toho movies. It's sadly not a hidden gem. It's a hidden quandary. Uh, it's there. It's It happened. It was made. And I guess for historical purposes, it's uh, something that should be uh, seen uh, once. Uh, right. And, but only uh, out of like utter boredom and desperation, like watching another stakeout, you know, right. like <laughs> it's, it's just, it's sad while you're doing it. It's actively sad, but like yeah. it's happening. Okay. Yeah. So, but I would say worth it just for Cesar Romero's performance. Cause he is right. so like just crazily over the top and loving it and, just loving being a mad scientist and it's, it's a match made in heaven, the part right. and the, and the actor, um, Joseph Cotton. It's, it's also uh, worth it just for watching his ascots. Yes. <laughs> Again, really great. Needs to be a YouTube video. Of the all ascot cuts. <laughs> ass cuts. <laughs> Latitude zero, the ass cut <laughs> again. Boy, that sounds real bad. That sounds real bad. when I say it out loud. <laughs> um okay so yeah this is a little bit sort of a unique deal because we actually have a couple of godzilla related things that we should probably talk about um number one is that and this is a i think a good thing is that there's going to be a uh, godzilla animated series on netflix premiering at some point next year mm -hmm. uh, which is going to be called godzilla singular point right and it's coming from the studio that made uh my hero academia oh. and it has the person designing the kaiju in it uh worked on such studio ghibli movies as princess mononoke and and howl's moving castle and what have you so like the top dudes right, right. now. Uh, furthermore, yes. they have a teaser trailer that showed off some of the actual kaiju that are going to be in this. And it's not, they're not making up new kaiju. It's they're mainlining like the underused, uh, misunderstood kaiju from the Showa era, it looks like. Right. Uh, including. Uh, Gabara from Godzilla's Revenge is coming back for the first time in any media. I mean, any hand-drawn animation, certainly, uh, ever. As well as, uh, I think, Baragon is in it. And, or, um, and also Jet Jaguar, who is like one of the greatest characters in the history of literature. So like... Nice to see him back in action. And he looks amazing. They all look great. Yeah. For um, animation, at least for the trailer. Again, we have right. to hold our breath because we've been broken before. Uh, right. But it's like, okay, it's a Godzilla animated series. And unlike certain other Godzilla animated series on Netflix, <laughs> which will remain nameless. Except uh, for it was called you know, actually, Planet of the Monsters. Planet and of it the just Monsters. had Godzilla. Planet of a monster uh, Planet of a monster 
planet of a monster. Godzilla, <laughs> planet of a monster, who is also just Godzilla. Redundant. Turns out Godzilla uh, was the planet the whole time. <laughs> and I want to say this is sort of early on in the process of this as far as what the public has seen. Um, we really only have stills of these kaijus at this point, okay? But there's no reason to think that the animation isn't going to look top-notch. And I am legitimately excited about Godzilla Singular Point. Uh, it's the first time I've been legitimately excited about a Godzilla project in like five years. So basically since Shin Godzilla. Okay. You know, so. Uh, speaking of Godzilla projects that I am not legitimately excited about anymore. <laughs> okay, so there's been some developments, uh, folks. Uh, okay, so Godzilla versus Kong has been included in a sort of umbrella deal that has broken in the last few weeks here. This is uh, early December of 2020. We're recording this. Uh, this is actually only about a week ago, or a, maybe a little less, that this was announced. Okay, so here it goes. Um, every tentpole, or I think every Warner Brothers movie in the year 2021 is being released uh, exclusively... Or at least same day as it is in theaters on the um, HBO Max app. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Which we could talk in great depth about how this is going to like destroy movies as we know it, all that shit. But I'm sure if you guys follow movie news in the slightest, you're already being inundated with articles that in a more knowledgeable way tread over that territory anyways i will say that uh, christopher nolan is not happy <laughs> with this uh neither is literally anyone in hollywood right. every major studio actor director producer they all actively want blood uh and they may get it i don't know because right. legendary pictures is suing or looking into suing uh, HBO Max and Warner Brothers right now. This is all happening. And so just to be 100% clear, what we're talking about here is, you know, whenever, I think May or whatever, the, the new Godzilla movie is supposed to come out from the Legendary Universe next year, you can either go to a theater and watch it or watch it on HBO Max in your house. Right. And that's insane. And, you know, say what you want about the rest of the movies under this deal. I could give a shit about Matrix 4. Matrix had its shot, though. It was called Matrix Revolutions. And, you know, it swung for the fences. Some people think it succeeded. Some people said that it failed. But it came out in a goddamn movie theater. Right. And I just really wanted this last Godzilla movie to just come out without any weird, embarrassing stipulations and things that you could point to it and be like, oh, I can't believe you even watched this. I thought you loved film or, you know, like it's like almost going to be like a political thing to watch it now. Right. And I just if it was going to come out and fail, I just wanted it to happen on its own. 
if it was going to come out and succeed, I'd want that to happen as well. But now there's going to be this giant asterisk next to it. You know what I mean? To be like, oh, it made $5 million at the box office or whatever. And then like 50 million people watched it on a streaming service. Like, what does that even, right. is that a yeah. success? What, that, what is that for sale? Um, right. There's also like, I mean, and sadly, it's just the theater experience itself. Um, and look, most of these Godzilla movies we've seen first and foremost on, a, especially for us two, VHS. We saw them right. on grainy VHSs and then uh, grainy DVDs. And, you know, as time's gone, I mean, now Criterion, I mean, I don't <clears throat> have it yet, but uh, next stimulus check. Uh, <laughs> The Criterion released the Blu-ray of, of all the uh, all the Showa era Godzilla movies, all the classics in pristine, uh, you know, HD. So, you know, that's there now. Um, but there is something about the theater experience that I just really enjoy. It would kind of have been weird if I saw Shin Godzilla on DVD, right? And also, as much as I ranted and raved against uh, a certain King of the Monsters uh, not too long ago, there was something about being next to uh, a man, and I'm just going to presume his son, uh, watching a movie together in a theater with other people doing the similar thing. And there's at least this nice mojo going that we're all experiencing something together, even if you don't like it. And I, I just don't know if I really want to watch King Kong or Godzilla versus King Kong alone. It just feels sad. I mean, under the circumstances, I understand. Um, right. You're in a new. <laughs> we are in a new territory. We don't know what the future is going to bring. Uh, hopefully, a vaccine. Uh, <laughs> right. How we view content now is going to be different. Um. So yeah. Yeah. Uh, so it's rightfully uh, pissing a lot of people off in Hollywood because, yeah. you know, a Chris Nolan movie is not meant to be seen, you know, really on DVD. It's meant to be seen on a huge screen that you are forever uh, blown away by or right. forever pissed off by because it's a and confusing it's, I just want to say mathematically, and I don't want to, I do not want to get into the weeds on this at all. A tentpole movie, when one of these things connects, it has the potential to earn the studio a billion dollars within like three or four weeks. Right. There is never going to be any type of streaming thing that's going to have the potential to make that much money that quickly. Right. Okay? So no matter what you're reading, like this is – they're losing money. Okay? Right. I just wanted to say that because a lot of people be like, who cares? It's streaming. It's a movie. It doesn't make any difference. Well, the difference is now that Legendary does not actually generate a profit for making these films. They're not taking a loss anymore, but they're not actually going to make any money from this that I can understand, that I can see. This is like a stopgap. Which means that future productions, with vaccine or no vaccine, like, you know, future productions after this, especially if these movies don't make a lot of money, are going to all look like Netflix original movies. Right. Uh, cheap and shoddy and uh, poorly thought out. Um, you know, and, uh, yeah. 
Yeah. So that's what's that's what's going on there. Um you know. We'll see how it goes. Yeah. <laughs> and who knows? That might not even happen. That they, yeah. like that deal might get rescinded or something, you know. Yeah. I don't know. We don't the, know yet. Uh, the, the, All this is so weird right now. But it's probably going to go through. Um, so anyways, there you, there you have it. Um, but Singular Point looks pretty awesome. And yeah. that, that I don't mind watching on a TV. Just a final, because we have to, the show will be three hours this week, and I don't want it to be. The whole goddamn point of them making new Godzilla movies was to see it in a fucking theater. <laughs> That's it. Right. As you said very eloquently, every other Godzilla movie we've ever seen was at home on a VHS or some weird DVD we got from the weird like college DVD store on the edge of town. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. That's how I saw Destroy All Monsters. Um, but like, no, these just we're supposed to go to a goddamn theater. Right. Who cares? Whatever. Just old men being grouches. Just watch it on my phone. Fuck it. Yeah. Uh. <laughs> well, uh, speaking of old men, uh, the, this, uh, I want to give a small shout out. Uh, not that we wouldn't have reviewed Latitude Zero, uh, but uh, the reason that we're doing this episode now is because I was tipped off by my friend, Nick Young about its availability, uh, friend and listener to the show, Nick Young. Uh, and I don't know if I've mentioned this before, but we became friends in, because of Godzilla. I, in eighth grade, so like 2003, I was doodling in my notebook and not paying attention to work. And he noticed that I was doodling just kaiju. Manda and Godzilla, Angus, around everything. And that's how we became friends. He was just that annoying person sitting next to me, and I'm sure he's thought the same of me. But he saw that and was like, "You like that?" And that, and we've been friends ever since. So yeah, so thank you, Nick, for <laughs> bringing this movie up. Uh, and now I never have to see it again. <laughs> only, only in our nightmares. Right. Uh, so <laughs> you, Cesar Romero's awesome in it, though. Yeah. Um. And they 100% stole his outfit for director Orson Krennic from Rogue One. That's, I mean, you can just look at the stills. Yeah. Um, so you've been listening to the blathering of two very lonely men who are trapped in their apartments. <laughs> who should know better by now. A.K.A. the Godzilla Pod War Hour. Um, if you're listening right now... You know, we've got our, all of our episodes are available uh, for free online, on web, on Apple Podcasts, also on Podbean. And uh, we've got the Facebook deal. Uh, and also our Twitter feed is so active. Just a lot of great stuff. Uh, it's, a, it's a rewarding Twitter account to be subscribed to. Definitely. Uh, and so look that up as well. And let's see what else. Hmm. I think that about does it for this week's episode, my friend. Uh, this month's episode, this half of a year's episode. <laughs> Don't do it weekly no more. No. 
Um, but I think 2021 20, looks promising. And uh, can't be any worse than 2020. <laughs> um, and I guess we'll see. Uh, everybody, you know, stay safe. And we appreciate your continued listenership. And um, peace on earth and goodwill toward men and women. And wear a fucking mask. (laughs) Okay, there it is.